This podcast was recorded at the American headquarters of the Ethereus Society, located in Hollywood, California, where service is the jewel in the rock of attainment. Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, to this um, uh, latest in the series of Why the Ethereum Society, which we've been running since 1999, I think, to um, literally help explain the Ethereum Society to people, because it is uh, it is quite complicated, and yet the work that is taking place within the Ethereum Society. And the, our cooperation with advanced uh, masters from, from other worlds is something that is of profound benefit and, uh, well, to the whole, to all of mankind, and is helping to uh, bring about the changes that are taking place on, on this earth at this time. So that's what this course is, is going to be all about why the Ethereum Society. It's going to be uh, five different parts. My name is Paul Nugent, and I am happily joined here this evening with Chrissy Blaze. Both of us have been with the Ethereum Society for uh, many, in my case, 20 years, and in Chrissy's probably about 30 years or more. Yeah, around about then. <laughs> A long tell, time. You can tell we're both from England, which is where the Ethereum Society was first founded in 1955, but we'll get into that um, in, in just in a, a little while. All right, well, what I like to do first of all um, when, when doing this class is give a perspective of our place on this earth within literally the whole of creation. Because we, we're brought up, or we, the tradition is that we are the only... Um, intelligent form of life in our own solar system uh, until not so very long ago in terms of earth history we believed that we were the center of the universe and not much before that we of course thought that the world was flat and what we're coming into is literally an age of science that is able to show to all of mankind in point of fact, how incredibly small we are in not just the galaxy, but even in our own solar system. And what we have up here in this photograph, this is a photograph that is taken from the Hubble telescope. And if you can imagine, if you, are you familiar with the um, constellation of, of the Big Dipper? Everybody know the Big Dipper, and in England we call it the Plough. Well, if you can imagine in the sky the constellation of the Big Dipper, which is what this photograph is actually of, and if you were to take a grain of sand and hold it at an arm's length in the area of the, of the constellation of the Big Dipper, what is obscured by that grain of sand, as shown by this Hubble telescope, are 1,500 galaxies in that tiny area of the sky, 1,500 galaxies. And our own solar system is just a tiny, or just one of countless solar systems within our one existing galaxy of the Milky Way, which 
You've got a f picture up there on the wall of our nearest uh, galaxy. And even in our own solar system, the sun takes up 98 or 19, even 99% of the mass of this solar system. And we know that Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus are all very large planets. So they take up the vast majority of the remaining 1% to 2% of the mass of this solar system. So uh, this Earth within our own solar system is just very, very small. So we are a very small part of this solar system, which is, as I say, just one solar system among countless solar systems within this galaxy. And to give a perspective, take a grain of sand, hold it in what is obscured by that grain of sand, we now know a 1,500 galaxy. So we are incredibly small. And science like this that is coming to us at an increasing rate is helping to shape our understanding of certainly our place in the cosmos and the, and the potentiality unquestionably for life beyond just this tiny, tiny, tiny planet. The other thing I like to explain is our concept of time because we'll be looking at time later on in, in this class tonight as it relates to the history of this Earth and previous civilizations that have existed on Earth. A few years ago, I think actually it was in, in, in 1999, there was an Egyptian professor called Professor Zawail who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. And he, he won this, the prize for chemistry because he isolated something called a femtosecond. Now, I always like to ask, and, and very few people ever come up with the right answer, how many femtoseconds? This is, this is, all of this is to help explain time because, as I say, again, we have a very limited concept of time on this earth. So the question is, how many femtoseconds do you think there are in one second of time? Anybody? Rough guess. 60. Okay, any advance on 60? A million. Okay, now we're getting up there. Any advance or change on a million? This is, this is something which this uh, scientist was able to isolate, something called a femtosecond, which apparently is going to revolutionize many aspects of science and technology. Okay, okay. Well, there are as many femtoseconds in one second of time as there are seconds in 32 million years. Can you imagine that? There are as, as many femtoseconds in one second of time as there are seconds in 32 million years. And, and the reason I kind of go into this is because, as, you, as Chrissy is going to explain in a moment, we've been on this earth for, for just over 18 million years. But in terms of femtoseconds, that's approximately just half a femtosecond of time. So not only do we have a very, very limited understanding of the vastness of space, but we also have a very limited understanding 
of, of time. And this is, all, this is all beginning to change with our, with our scientific understanding, but not only our scientific understanding, and this is part of the reason where the Ethereum Society comes into the picture, but also in terms of uh, our spiritual existence and our metaphysical existence in this creation. Th there, is a, there is a quickening, there is a change that is taking place on this earth at this time, which we'll go into a little bit more in part two. And so we're at literally an, a renaissance, the cusp of a whole new age of understanding about who and what we really are and our place in, in, the, in the cosmos. So uh, I guess at this point, Chrissy, I'm going to sort of turn it over to you a little bit to explain, as I touched on there, how we came to be on this earth, from where we came, and a little bit of our history in that sense. Paul gives me the easy questions. Actually, Paul devised this series some years ago, and he did an excellent job, I think, and uh, he kindly invited me to join him for, for this particular series, which is my first one. And then he told me, I think yesterday, that uh, he'd like me to cover the history of mankind, <laughs> followed by giving me a time limit of about 10 minutes. So this is a <laughs> welcome to our history, our true history. Now you might say, how do I know? How do I know the history of mankind? Well, I have this information. We have this information in the Ethereum Society from the founder, Dr. George King, who was a, a yoga master, very enlightened one. And he was able to read the Akashic records. Does, anyone, does everyone know what the Akashic records are? There are records which contain the true history of mankind in the ethers. And when we all reach a certain level of advancement, we too will be able to read these records and see the true history. Not the history in our history books, but the true history. And our history on this planet is a very long one, and it's actually a very dark one. And I would like to go back. You've all heard of Atlantis, probably. Lemuria. Who's heard of that? The Lost Continents of Mew. Before that was another civilization, which some of you may not have heard of, called Maldek. Who's heard of that? Maldek. Some of you have. And let's start back there. This is hundreds and thousands of years ago. There was a civilization, a planet, called Maldek, which orbited around the sun. It was in this solar system between Mars and Jupiter. And you might say, where is it? I'll come to that in a minute. This planet was fairly advanced as a planet, the people on it, certainly. More so than we are today in some ways. They were able to um, uh, lead a comfortable life. They had no shortages of, of any kind because they could control the weather, as I believe we will be able to do in the future. So they had no droughts and, um, and so on. And they had an abundant life, and they could even in, had a certain interchange with other planets in the solar system. They, as far as their fuel and energy was concerned, they um, still had some limitation at the time. And they finally, their scientists, got round to discovering nuclear energy. And they, um, in their apathy, which they had, a lot of them had, because they had everything they needed. They had robots to do the basic work, and they had a lot of time at their, on their hands. So what happened then was that they sort of went, uh, some of them gained a sort of lust for power, 
and they were able to split the atom. And then, of course, the next thing you can guess, there was war, and they managed to destroy the planet. I say they. I should say we. Because I'm talking now about our past. And uh, they destroyed the planet, which is a great crime in, in the cosmic scheme of things. And this planet, this beautiful planet, which apparently was a very beautiful green planet, is now uh, the asteroid belt. It's now lumps of lifeless rock. And, of course, we, mankind, had to reincarnate by the law of karma onto the other... We were on the other realms, released onto the other realms. We died. We killed ourselves, if you like. And so there we were, hanging around on the other realms and uh, not having a planet on which to live anymore. So there is a hierarchy in, in the cosmos, which you'll find out later. It's not just us. Uh, there's a lot of much more advanced and enlightened beings than us in this solar system and beyond. I say, thank goodness there are. And they consulted together and discussed where we could go, mankind could go, because we just destroyed our planet. And Jupiter, it was decided, was um, not suitable, was actually a great planet used for as a reception planet for other races from beyond this solar system, and still is, actually. And uh, Mars was a planet on which there was uh, construction uh, uh, taking place and a lot of activities. And Venus and Uranus were considered, we were not enlightened enough to inhabit these planets. Mercury was and is the communication center of this solar system. And so finally, it was decided to approach the Earth, this beautiful, gorgeous planet, very, very enlightened being, if you like. And the Earth was approached whether she would take these, let's face it, murderers, these, this race of people who just killed a planet, and in so doing, hold up her own evolution, because here was a highly advanced, beautiful planet and uh, out of great compassion, she decided to do so. So there we were. We reincarnated on Earth. And uh, at that time on Earth was a race of beings called Adamic Man. And uh, this race helped us. At that time, we were kind of mutants. Helped us, taught us, and eventually this Adamic Man was able to leave the Earth. And um, there we were, building up again another civilization, and again, we discovered quite a lot of things. We're very scientifically advanced. And this civilization was called Lemuria. And a lot of power. And uh, this time, there were certain camps of humanity. And you can probably recognize this. There was, a, there was a, one camp that was seeking the spiritual truths, um, metaphysical truths. There was another camp who were really um, re very apathetic. And they didn't really want to do anything much. And there was another camp who... Uh, wanted power. And guess what happened? <laughs> there was conflict, there was war, nuclear energy was discovered, uh, nuclear war ensued, and this time, of course, the Earth wasn't uh, destroyed because it had been decided prior to that that we, mankind, would not be allowed by karmic law, by the cosmic hierarchy, to destroy another planet. So that, that wasn't going to happen. But we destroyed the civilization and certain of mankind were taken off 
the planet to continue their evolution. Certain of the more evolved ones, certain of the more enlightened ones, were taken away from this planet. I know this sounds like science fiction to some of you, but it is the truth. And some of it, I think, will start to ring true if you really think about it. And taken off to go to other planets more advanced than ours to continue their evolution. So we had to start again from the atomic slime that we had created. That was Lemuria. And we started to build again. Another, this time a really brilliant civilization, as some of you have, may have read about, uh, the wonderful civilization of Atlantis that was created. And there were great minds in this civilization, great spiritual beings. And this was a wonderful civilization where people were more enlightened in some ways than we are today and had discovered uh, space travel and they were communicating with other planets more freely than we are now. And in some ways, as I say, they were more enlightened. But what happened? The same thing. There was uh, two camps. There was the dark forces or the black magicians and there was the forces of light or the white magicians. And uh, the same conflict the same destruction of the civilization of Atlantis. And this is very well documented. I think Lemuria and Atlantis, if you would like to research them, you'll find quite a lot of documentation about them. So I'm not just sort of making this up. Uh, as I said, Dr. King has read the Akashic Records, and this is um, our true history, if you like. So when people come up to me at expos and things, and you've probably had the same thing, and they say, you know, they're so full of how great they are. And, uh, well, I, I came from another planet. I always think to myself, well, we're not really so great because we are the ones who've been left behind. Because in both Lemuria and Atlantis, the very advanced people amongst humanity, the enlightened ones, were actually removed from the planet by a spacecraft and taken to other planets to continue with their evolution. So we're kind of like the ones who've been left behind. <laughs> And here we are again. And, um, you know, we're facing the same sort of decisions, the same, almost the same situation as we have in the past. When we think about the world now, we have tremendous brains, tremendous science, and we have tremendous spirituality, and we also have tremendous darkness, war, um, lust for power. We have um, greed, we have poverty, terrible poverty and awful things happening on the surface of this planet that really shouldn't be happening straight from the dark ages. And at the same time, we have this wonderful sort of spiritual renaissance, which Paul mentioned, uh, that's happening, this rising of consciousness. So we can see. And then between these two extremes, you see there's a mass of people who couldn't care less, right? the apathetic majority, just as there was in Lemuria, in Maldek, in Atlantis. There's this mass of um, apathetic majority. And this is the problem. So we have now, I think, more than ever before, we can see that people is coming to a crossroads, right? We've heard um, people like Al Gore, whether you like what he's saying or not, um, he's been trying for 30 years to get people to wake up to the fact that we have an environmental crisis happening. And we've all heard about it now. We've you know, seen the concerts and whether you think it's a good idea or not, and I actually do. Um, people are now realizing en masse that we have this massive problem to face that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 
probably they, they wouldn't have realized. So people are becoming more conscious, which is, has got to happen. And one thing I was thinking today, one thing uh, that because we destroyed a planet, which is a tremendous crime if you think about it, then we have to learn as a race, I believe, we have to learn, number one, how reliant we are upon the planet on which we live. And we have to learn that we are responsible for everything we do that affects this planet and our environment. And we also have to learn to really appreciate and really to love this planet. Because let's face it, without this planet, without the Mother Earth, and she is a great goddess, where would we be? We wouldn't be alive. We wouldn't have experience. We'd have nothing without the planet on which we live. That really is the next stage of, there is, as you've rightly pointed out, this growing awareness that our planet is in terrible danger. In fact, it was on the news tonight that now those wonderful creatures, the penguins, are being threatened with extinction. So much of, of life is and so much of, of the seas and the air and even the soil is now polluted. The erosion, we're all very familiar with it, as Chris is saying. But I think the next sort of leap, if it's a quantum leap or not, I don't know, but the next step for the consciousness of mankind is to actually become aware that the Earth herself is a living being and is a highly evolved, conscious uh, intelligence in her own right, an ancient uh, living being with feeling, with feeling. That is uh, the next kind of step that we need to take in our own degree of consciousness. Yes, we have to... uh, stop the pollution, the, the global warming, whatever it is that we're doing, threatening the, physic, the physical aspects of the earth, but become aware, develop a, a relationship, a conscious relationship, which um, the more indigenous people have always had, a consciousness that the earth herself is a living, highly evolved intelligence. Okay, I think I'm handing over to you now to pause. I, okay. Well, Talk about the present, from the past to the present. Well, coming back to where we were, this whole pre- where we are now, having been through these previous civilizations of Lemuria and Atlantis, of course, in the middle of the last century, uh, once again, mankind learned how to split the atom and use that incredibly sacred energy solely for destructive purposes by developing in the in the Second World War, the atom bomb, of course, which we used, and to go on from there to develop the hydrogen bomb and the vast arsenals that now exist of atomic weapons uh, upon the surface of this Earth. And it was at the same time coinciding with the discovery and the development of atomic power that flying saucers became very commonly sighted in the skies around the Earth. Uh, they, were, they were seen uh, regularly in the Second World War by pilots on all sides, referred to as Foo Fighters. And then, of course, in 1947, there was the very famous Roswell incident. And then in 1948, there was the sighting by Kenneth Arnold in Washington State when he termed the phrase flying saucers, describing these craft that looked like much like flying saucers. And in the 50s and in the 60s, 
uh, sightings of UFOs were very common. And there were certainly many UFO groups, particularly here in America, but also uh, around the world. And I think in Marta's part of the world, uh, South America, they, you know, the saying is that if you don't believe or if you haven't seen a flying saucer, you've got to be mad because they are literally, you know, even today, very commonly sighted. And there's, there's various reasons as to why this whole phenomena reoccurred at the same time. Obviously, these intelligences have witnessed the, the, the rise and the fall of humanity throughout our whole civilization. As it, as it mentioned somewhere in, in the blurb on all of this, trying to describe the Ethereum society is, is literally like trying to describe a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle because so many sort of different pieces fit into one another. The point is that there is not just this physical realm, which, again, as we've had this very limited concept of our understanding within time and space, in, in a little way, we're like, um, perhaps like a spider in this room. And this, this spider is just beginning to emerge and, and feel its way around and discover the sort of corners of the room and, and the walls and whatever else with no comprehension of what lies outside of this room, in the garden, in the whole street, in the whole of Hollywood, in Los Angeles, California. And that's, obviously it goes on and on and on. And that is really very much how we are. And it's not just physical limitations of thought and understanding that we have, but as I said, it's also a very limited metaphysical understanding. There are other realms that exist both around this, about around this planet and around all of the planets and, in fact, all, all of creation. There are other dimensions than just this base physical realm. Chrissy mentioned earlier after the fall of Maldeg, where do we go? And um, because you can take the, the physical, the, you can kill the physical body but the soul and the spirit and the mind, those, those bodies and the emotional body continue, but just on a, on a different plane of vibration. And so these, in terms of these flying saucers, you know, where have they come from? Well, they've come primarily from the other planets within our own solar system, but on a different dimension of existence, a different plane and coming back to science and technology, science is, is beginning to examine these planes with things like parallel universes, uh, dark matter. It's, it's, it's a whole new sphere of understanding that mankind at this time in our evolution is beginning to evolve into. And it does coincide, as I, as I say, with an understanding that the Earth is a living being. There is literally a great awakening that is taking place. And so these flying saucers that were, as I say, commonly seen in the 50s and 60s come from other dimensions within our own solar system. And this also it helps to explain why they were commonly seen, and still are commonly seen, to suddenly blink out and then reappear. Because all that they're actually doing is passing through different realms 
of existence. They're part, we, when we see them, obviously we're seeing them in our own present physical term of reference. Um, but when they, when they blink out, all they're doing is passing on to another realm. And I liken um, flying saucers, at least sightings of flying saucers, which again, as I say, were much more common in the 50s and 60s, to the phenomenon that we have uh, that's more common now of crop circles. Uh, Crop circles, much like flying saucers, are ridiculed. And yet, for anybody who's taken the time to investigate crop circles, and again, as Christy was saying, do some research on, on, on crop circles, do a Google search or whatever, and talk to people who have investigated them, and these are very, very real. They are not literally made as, as, as the press or the tabloid press would like us to believe by two men, two drunken men at night, um, tramping around in a field with a plank of wood. These are things that, are, that appear in a very short space of time, absolutely perfectly, incredibly complex in terms of their geometrical uh, figures that, that, that are now being manifested. And as I say, I think that one of the prime things with crop circles, just like flying saucers, is to get us, humanity, to think out of our very limited box and, and, and begin to embrace something beyond our own common understanding. And so, as I say, there were all of these sightings in the 50s to hopefully to get humanity to think in a, in, in a much broader terms because we have to think in broader terms, because number one, the planet Earth is, from our perspective, only from our perspective, in a kind of a peril. And there is this tremendous change and shift in consciousness that is taking place. Obviously, flying saucers, as I say, much like um, crop circles today, are largely debunked. They were debunked at the time, primarily. But it's very hard to fool cosmic masters or the intelligence, intelligences behind uh, or these, these craft and the intelligences who man these craft. And what, or part of this whole, if you like, for want of a better term, this, uh, the, the, this whole sort of cosmic plan for the enlightenment of the human race, they... Uh, used, if used is uh, probably not quite the right word, but they communicated. They communicated through a very small number, a handful of of people, regular people just like you and I, in one sense, um, during that period. And one of those was Dr. George King, which is out of or through whom the whole Ethereum Society has originated. He was a, a proven contactee of masters from another world. It wasn't just for us to see them, but they had a very definite message for the people of Earth, at least for those of us who were open to hear it and without dismissing it completely out of hand as absolute rubbish, fabrication, science fiction. And they didn't randomly choose George King. There were good reasons why he was chosen. And that, Chrissy, is over to you. Why, why was Dr. George King chosen as a channel, as a medium 
for masters beyond this earth? Another good question. <laughs> Dr. George King was chosen for a number of very practical reasons, really. But first of all, let me go back to his early life and his childhood and say a few year, words about that. He was born in, in England in 1919, January the 23rd, in Wellington in Shropshire, which is a little town in the, uh, towards the north of England. And even as a child, he was very unusual. And um, I remember a story. I came across Dr. King at a very early age myself. I was sort of 14 when I first heard about him. And in fact, when I was a child, my parents would take me up to the north of London to see my grandmother. And I was probably six or seven. And uh, we would pass this place on the Fulham Road with a flying saucer outside. And I later, I'm sort of digressing here, but I later found out that was the Ethereum Society. And it must have been just about when the society was opened, actually. So I've sort of been connected with the society. And, of course, my relatives were very much into it and told me a lot about Dr. King even when I was a child. So yeah, I sort of grew up with him, if you like. But one interesting story I heard was when he was only 11 and his mother was very ill. And he was living in the north of England at the time and he was wanting to help her, obviously, as any child would. But unlike most children, he kind of did something about it. He went out in the middle of the night. It was raining. It's always raining in England, right? And it was a dark, cold, freezing winter night. And all he had was an oil lamp at the time. It was 1930, I think it was, or 1930. And he went out into these dark fields, 11 years of age. He was frightened, but he wanted to heal his mother. That was his objective. And he stopped, and the oil lamp sort of flickered out. And there he was in the pitch dark, in the middle of the fields, the freezing cold, the rain and the wind, a little 11-year-old boy. And what did he do? He started to pray. He started to send his mother healing. And not just like a feeble prayer, but a tremendously powerful prayer. This energy went through him. And as he was sending this power, a being manifested a few feet away, seven or eight feet away from him, I think it was. And this was a, a figure, of, a male figure, dressed in robes. And he said to um, George that he could go home now because his mother was healed. And so he went back in the dark quite a long way, and his mother was um, waiting at the door for him. And interestingly, she, wa she herself was an exceptional woman. She was quite a well-known medium in England at the time. She was waiting at the door for him, and she, he, she said, you know, she knew that he'd been sending her healing, and she, she was much better. She'd been virtually on her deathbed, and she was standing at the door completely healed. And the next day, the doctor came, and he, he couldn't understand it. There she was baking a cake, and uh, he thought she was virtually dying, you know. And, of course, at the age of 11, he'd performed this miraculous healing. Well, this was just a pattern. This was the beginning of a pattern. And as he grew older, he got very deeply into the psychic worlds, and, but not into the delusion of them. He had this amazing discernment and discrimination, which enabled him to see beyond the kind of the baubles and the the um, 
uh, what do I say, icing on the cake of the psychic world. He wasn't interested in that, but delved deeply into psychic phenomena. He was able to master all types of psychic phenomena. And um, he could leave his body at will. He could uh, later, he, he even knew how to um, uh, dematerialize and rematerialize again. He could levitate, and, and many, many uh, psychic phenomena he achieved. None of which was by chance. I mean, he, he worked hard for those. He worked very hard. I'm coming on to that yeah. point. Got there. He worked very hard for that. Um, and, in fact, in 1954, just before he was selected, 1954, he was very, um, very, very active in the healing movement, in the healing work, and he was just about to discover a very important uh, breakthrough in healing, and he was at the time working with some astounding healers on the higher realms and um, was doing a lot. And he thought at the time he was going to devote his life to healing. Just before that, going back a bit uh, from Paul's point, that once he had mastered the psychic phenomena, he then took to yoga. And he took to yoga with a will and would practice yoga 10 hours a day on top of a normal job because he, he did you know, a regular job and so forth. But he practiced yoga for 10 hours a day for 10 years and mastered all uh, the forms of yoga. He was a master of not just hatha yoga, is the common yoga that we know of, postures and so forth, but mantra yoga, mudra yoga, nani yoga, the yoga of wisdom, raja yoga, the yoga of control of the mind and so on, and um, kundalini yoga, and mastered all the yogas. He was a master in all the yogas. And so he was prepared, but he thought that he was going to devote his life to healing because he was making these tremendous breakthroughs at the time in 1954. Um, but it wasn't to be because he was chosen, if you like, for a great task. So you can see why. He, you might say, why was he chosen? You, know, but you can see that right from the beginning, right from a child, he was an unusual person. And he had many extreme uh, and unusual abilities that he developed over his lifetime. So he wasn't just uh, a run-of-the-mill person. He was an extraordinary person. And, of course, the great ones, they know. that They know They know everybody on Earth. They know every one of us in this room, our past history, um, our present. And if you, they say that if you know two times, you know the third. So also our future. But, of course, we change our future with every choice, every action we make. But still, uh, that's known about. So, of course, it would be known that when any one of us starts to really rise up on our spiritual path and really make strides and really start to change, then it is noted by the, the great ones. It is noted. It is known about. And so he was chosen. And also not just that, not just because of his ability, but he was an exceptionally... And if any, any of you know the people from the north of England... They'll know, or Paul knows, are very, very down-to-earth people. Very down-to-earth. The weather is terrible. And so this makes them a very sort of a tough people, aren't they? Very down-to-earth. So this is an essential quality, too, on the spiritual path, so that we're not just kind of idealists, but we're practical idealists. And he was chosen because the great ones knew that he didn't just have the ability to... Um, take the information that they were going to give him, but he would do something with it. He was practical enough, determined enough to actually do something Grounded. with it. Pardon? Grounded. Grounded, yeah, that's the word. 
Um, so that's why he was chosen. Uh, well, also, I mean, I was just going to throw in there that you mentioned that he do all this yoga, this yogic practice, um, for a, a 10 hours a day over a 10-year period. And the result of such intense yogic practice is that it causes a fluid that we all have in the base of the spine. I'm sure you've probably heard of it, called the, called the kundalini which is this fluid referred to as a two-and-a-half-coiled serpent in the base of the spine. And what intense yogic practice will do, the purpose of yogic practice, is to cause that fluid to rise through a channel in the spine called the Sushumna channel up through the psychic centers of the body into the higher centers, um, which is... uh, brings about what is the goal of yoga, yoga being a Sanskrit word, which means union with God. It's the purpose. It's actually, it's, 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 the, it's the number one reason we all take on a physical uh, life. It's to, the the primary, primary reason is to raise the kundalini up into the higher psychic centers so that we have this literal experience of yoga, this union with God, in which... Uh, in which we know that it is all absolute oneness and it's a state referred to as cosmic consciousness and, or, or to give it its, its Sanskrit word, samadhi. So George King was able to go into this state of samadhi, this very elevated state of consciousness, which is also what, in, which is primarily actually, what enabled him to be used as a channel for beings from other worlds. And um, Chrissy's actually going to read uh, a chapter from uh, one of Dr. King's books called You Are Responsible, um, in which Dr. King was first contacted by a master from another world um, called The Command. Prepare yourself, you are to become the voice of interplanetary parliament. That was the simple and precise command I received one sunny Saturday morning in May 1954. The crisp tones of the voice which uttered the words, coming as it did from apparently empty space in my little flat in London, brought me to a state of shocked immobility. There was no mistaking the meaning of the message or its importance. Nor was there anything eerie about it, for sunshine and eeriness do not seem to go together. I had been a student of yoga for too long to consider that I was a victim of my own imagination. Yoga teaches the pupil that imagination is an energy which, when controlled, becomes transmuted into a great creative force. Having diligently practiced this great science for many years, the reader can be assured that I could not easily fall prey to any flight of uncontrolled imaginative fancy. How many of us can perform good sailing tactics within a sheltered estuary, yet shiver when the captain says, now you are ready to to take her out to sea, my lad. That night, the wonderful opaque curtain, which is sleep, could not be drawn across the window of my turbulent thoughts. However, by Sunday morning, The somewhat threadbare carpet seemed little the worse for the extra traffic which frequently passed over it during my nocturnal wanderings. With dawn came the realization that that which cannot be rejected must be accepted. Although I had considered the command from all possible angles, 
The one thing I could not do was to reject it. The sages from the East have a profound philosophy which governs the students' acceptance of all their teachings. It is, first, read the theory, second, apply this to the mind, and third, act upon that which is acceptable to the consciousness. I would like to emphasize that it was not the method by which the command had been given which disturbed me. The Bible records many such happenings. But the fact that in order to obey it, I should have to give up another line of metaphysical study just when the answer to an important problem seemed imminent. Moreover, a few valiant helpers who possessed humanitarianism as a common factor all believed that this answer would be of priceless value to suffering mankind. Indeed, we believed that we were on the verge of discovering a new method of cancer treatment which could cure certain forms of this malignant scourge. Nevertheless, this command came out of the blue in such a way that no receiver could do anything but listen and obey. What use is the most carefully predetermined route on a chart in the face of a violent whirlwind? In this case, a whirlwind produced by the cold, unfeeling march of mathematics into unknown skies, skies from which oft-times rained a killer dust to blot out the benign face of the life-giving sun. It was soon made clear that a drastic measure was necessary in order to meet a grave emergency. For after spending many hours discussing an enforced change of direction with my immediate associates, without obtaining the type of confirmation required, I retreated into contemplation and meditation. On the following Sunday evening, I was somewhat startled by the entrance of another man into my rooms. As is the general practice before attempting meditation, I always carefully locked the door. This had not deterred my visitor, who I discovered later from his method of exit, had obviously walked straight through the door. I recognized him immediately as an Indian Swami of world renown. I am not permitted to divulge his name nor much of what passed, but any lingering doubts I harbored as to whether the intended healing investigation should take second place to the previous Saturday's happening were soon dispelled. My visitor was a great, great yogi adept who had projected himself in a more subtle state than what is generally known as the physical body. Though he looked real enough, even the boards beneath his feet creaked as he crossed the room. To be in his presence was an experience too wonderful to describe, and until now this has been a precious secret locked up with my most cherished memories. It is not for you to judge whether you are worthy to be chosen, my son, said this great Swami. He could obviously read my thoughts and apparently knew that a feeling of personal unworthiness for what was obviously a large undertaking had troubled me for days. He had taken a seat facing me, and every line of his face and every inch of his spotlessly white robe was perfectly distinct to me. I had often read about feats performed by the masters of the East who could project themselves for thousands of miles in a flash and appear as lifelike as if they had just alighted from an aeroplane. But this was the first time I had ever witnessed such a feat performed by someone whom I knew to be very much alive. His voice was gentle, 
but had a peculiar penetrating property. The real necessities of the present age, he declared, brought about by the unfeeling march of science into the realms of the atom on the one hand and the wrong thought and action of the masses on the other hand can only be met by those few who are ready to tune in to the emanations now being sent on this earth and become the servants of the cosmic masters. You are only one of many called upon to prepare yourself for the coming conflict between the materialistic scientist who has arrived at his conclusions by the cold application of mathematics and the occult scientist who has arrived at his conclusions through the recognition that God is all. Pray be still. Meditate and open the doors of your heart and mind to the precious waters of truth. After saying these things, my instructor gave me further initiation into a certain yogic exercise, the careful practice of which brings about an ability to travel from the physical body in such a way that full memory of all the experiences gained are retained by the traveler. He also stated that those people best fitted to form a group of willing helpers would be brought into my orbit. I was informed that I should receive a letter from a, a school of yoga in London, which I should attend for some months, and that I should diligently practice the exercises taught there. The Swami, having imparted this information, bowed with the politeness of a race which enjoyed an advanced culture which, when ancient Britons still painted themselves with woad. Then he made his exit by walking straight through my locked door. I dashed to open it immediately, but the long corridor outside was deserted. My friend from the east had disappeared. This was the spur to action. As it was necessary to set up a group to help in the coming campaign, I gave this formation all my spare time attention. This was to be a specialized group of workers who would be willing to devote hours of their valuable leisure time to help one person to produce the goods. They had to have full belief in the somewhat mysterious project and at the same time be knowledgeable in the basic aspects of occult and contemplative practice. On the face of it, even as few as half a dozen, dozen such people would be difficult to meet. But the task seemed to work itself out. In fact, I was able to describe these people a full week before I met them for the first time. Meanwhile, I was invited to a school of yoga in London by a letter which came out of the blue. The hours spent in the exercises and pranayama, a system whereby the universal life force is controlled through deep breathing and breath control, yielded good results. Quite soon after the deliverance of the command, I was able to tune in and receive telepathically information which was relayed over millions of miles of etheric space. A message from Venus was recorded on our tape recorder for the first time. And this was the beginning of over 600 message, messages which were received from cosmic masters from different planets within this solar system which forms the basis, the philosophy of the teachings of the Ethereum Society. And we have all these messages which we call cosmic transmissions recorded for posterity in vaults. Um, they're very, very precious. You, 
humanity as a whole and to the future on this earth. But particularly at that time, the messages were coming thick and fast. This was the 1950s, before I know all of you here were even born. But uh, at that time, as Paul mentioned, this was a, a very dangerous time. Um, and there was thought that was the prevalent of, a, of the Cold War. Um, and, you know, this, this had to be stopped. And many of the messages, many of the early messages, which some of you probably have read, are about the dangers of nuclear experimentation. Indeed, that was um, in a little bit left for this evening. Uh, the message really in those early days was, was in two parts. Number one, the most critical or most urgent message was a dire warning to humanity to um, s- stop all of the nuclear experimentation that was going on at that time. As I say, the, the atomic bomb led to the hydrogen bomb. And here we, here we are again, here we were again, and still are. I mean, look what's going on in the world today. This, this, this same uh, atomic threat is the most, one of the most serious threats facing the human race even today. But uh, back in the 1950s, this is the great arms race that was going on between the Soviets and the West. And uh, as mentioned, this is where we've been before. And uh, as we'll look at next week, this is not really allowed to happen because of changes that are taking place within the earth herself as a living being. Um, which is giving rise to the whole shift in consciousness, as I say, that is taking place, which was the other aspect of this cosmic message. The one aspect being, as I say, to cease and desist with atomic experimentation. The other aspect is the, it was a very spiritual message, reminding us of who and what we really are. Uh, we are. We are aspects of God. All things are aspects of God. And in that sense, aspects of, of, of a oneness, and, uh, which, is, which is attained through, uh, through the experience of cosmic consciousness by raising the kundalini within ourselves. To have this experience, as I say, that's the primary reason that we're here. And um, uh, it's pretty evident that most of us don't attain it, uh, which is where the whole law of reincarnation comes in just because we have a life and we fail to uh, attain this experience of cosmic consciousness uh, all it actually means is that we are we, we will be and are and have been reborn back onto this physical plane in the time that we are uh, so so to speak dead in our understanding there's actually no such thing as death but we are inhabiting one of these other realms that exist around the earth and depending on our whole karmic pattern throughout our previous existences, our previous lifetimes, that will either be uh, a higher realm, if you like, um, sort of, again, in biblical terms, a so-called heaven, a he- more heavenly realm, uh, or if it has been um, a criminal life um, in varying degree, it will be time spent in, a, in one of the lower astral realms or, uh, again, in biblical terms, the hells. But none, none of these are eternal. It's not an eternal heaven at this stage and it's not an eternal hell. It's merely a time of waiting 
for us to once again be reborn onto this physical plane. And Chrissy, as a, as a notable author, knows considerable amount about that, our t- the time of our birth, the place of our birth, even, of our, even our parents, is, is not haphazard at all. It's all very much uh, predetermined by ourselves. So we all exist within this law of reincarnation at this present stage of our evolution. And re- uh, just to conclude um, the, the, this this, this part, this preliminary part of this of this course, um, as Chrissy mentioned, the cosmic masters. We refer to these intelligences who spoke through Dr. King as cosmic masters. Cosmic masters. They gave over six hundred, just over six hundred transmissions through Dr. King. And in 1961, uh, in March and February of that year. They delivered uh, one master in particular. We'll be looking more about this master in the next class, a master, an individual known as Mars Sector 6, uh, from, from literally from the planet Mars. He delivered a series of nine transmissions with Dr. King in, this, in a state of cosmic consciousness, in a state of samadhi. And they delivered this, a series of nine transmissions that we call the Nine Freedoms, and the, these nine freedoms outline the journey that we are all on, whether we are conscious of it or not. This is the path of evolution that we're all taking through this solar system. And Mars Sector 6 describes it in terms of nine freedoms as steps towards our own karmic, karmic freedom, our karmic uh, liberation. And the first of those steps, the first essential requirement for all of us that we have to take is, is, is bravery. That's the first step we have to take. And, and bravery literally means initially, or an aspect of it for sure, is to listen to one's own conscience. Because in listening to one's own conscience, one will tap into one's own innate sense of truth. The truth is within us all, but it's, it's um, all too easy for us to, not to take that step of, of, of honoring what is true. We all know it, but uh, unfortunately we're prone to lying and such things as that and, and, and half-truths. And so our life is therefore, therefore sort of goes in a downward spiral from there. So the first step literally is to honor this, the sense of truth, take this step of bravery within ourselves, our, the voice of our own conscience. And that in a sense leads to the second of the nine freedoms, which is love. Because what is behind that bravery, that whole sense of conscience and consciousness is actually a feeling and an emanation of love. And when one then begins to take that step of, of truth and love, one begins to adopt a lifestyle of service, which is the third freedom. One no longer is totally just sort of out for me, 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 but one has this realization of truth which is universal the sense and feeling of love, which, as I say, leads to a life of service, of not just living for oneself, but helping other individuals, which comes back to this thing about compassion, having compassion for others, which is an aspect of evolution. 
And when we are living from those three standpoints of truth and love and service, the inevitable result of that, which is the fourth freedom, is enlightenment. What, what we're picking away at by living at, from that point of view, we're picking away at enlightenment. And what comes beyond enlightenment in the fifth freedom, which is what Dr. King had and the Swami Chrissy referred to in that reading, and what the yoga master is about, is the experience of cosmic consciousness, which, we're all here, which we will all attain. It's what we're all here to attain. Lifetime after lifetime, we'll keep coming back until we attain that. And the result of being able to attain cosmic consciousness at will, again, such as that Swami, um, is that when one can bring about that state of consciousness within oneself, which is the Kundalini fully raised at this point, we have broken the whole um, cycle of rebirth. We've learned the lessons that we are here to learn on this earth. And so from, when we're able to bring that about, then we will experience the, the sixth freedom, which is ascension, which of course was demonstrated on this earth by such a master, namely Jesus Christ, because he'd broken this whole cycle of, 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 of death and he literally attained ascension. We're all here to, to experience ascension. And when one has, when one has experienced ascension, then one is no longer confined to this tiny, 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 coming back to the earlier part of this class tonight, planet. One has the ability to, go, to travel beyond just this earth. The traditional belief was that having attained that state of cosmic consciousness, one literally went back to God slash, in, in, in perhaps in another sense, oblivion. Um, but it, it, it's not like that. Um, there's a whole, there's, there's a whole uh, galactic journey that we are all embarked on as we all go back to God. And um, the ancient yogis re referred to cre creation as the outbreathing and inbreathing of God. There is this physical manifestation that we have that is now all in the process of going back to God in that sort of out-breathing, in-breathing process, which leads you know, to one sort of wonderful speculative question is, for how long has this God been breathing? How many of these manifestations have there been? And so we're all in this process of going back to God, but not as a, just in a sort of, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in such a simple way. Um, there is, in the seventh freedom, interplanetary existence. And to answer another sort of, sort of speculative question, what, you know, coming back to this whole outbreathing, this, this experience that we're all on, this evolutionary journey, why? Why? You know, why is it all in the first place? And my own answer to this question is because of the incredible experience that we will have, the incredible delight. I remember years ago as a student having seen a film, and I loved that film. And um, my friend uh, um, hadn't seen it. And I remember saying to him, I envy you because you have not seen this film yet. 
you don't know what this incredible film is going to be like. You're going to have a fantastic experience when you see this film. And I think that's how it is for, for, for life. Um, but we're at this stage where we're still unenlightened. But once we become enlightened, we will discover what an incredible, phenomenal journey we are all on. And so, as I say, the, the seventh of these freedoms is, is interplanetary existence, which is extremely elevated culture and civilization. There's no war going on on these other. There's no disease. There's no ownership. There's no possession. There's merely the realization that God is all and everything and is virtually unknowable, well, is unknowable. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit more in another series of teachings that were given um, in a series we call the 12 blessings and then the eighth freedom within our own solar system is saturnian existence existence upon the planet saturn which is the most evolved planet within our own solar system and beyond that the ninth freedom within our within our own tiny 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 relatively speaking solar system but vast as it, in terms of it, as it applies to us now at this present stage in our evolution is solar existence. The sun is a living being. As I said, we are solidified sunlight. This earth has come from the sun. And all of creation, even the galaxy, coming back to the 12 blessings, is a living being. And um, so the, the ninth and final step of our journey within the solar system is solar existence. And um, some of you may have either attended or have heard the podcast series that was done here in recent weeks on, on, these, on these nine steps, the, the nine freedoms. So that's about it for tonight. Um, a lot of information uh, to mull over, but are there, does anybody have any, any questions? I mean, really, it's an incredibly exciting time. And, and the, more, the more enlightened we become, uh, the, the, the more incredible, the, the more we live, actually, the more alive we become. And so much of this, as Chrissy was saying, actually makes sense. I, I mean, it, I, I would go as far as to say that we, we actually know everything anyway, but it's just so buried and blocked by lifetimes of conditioning. And you know, watching the news, it's just a matter of waiting for people to get it. You know, to, for, for, for people to realize, I mean, number one, we have to stop killing each other and um, become aware of what we really are, what, who, who we are, what we are, what we're a part of. And it's just an incredibly exciting thing, which is happening. Um, on the one hand, for those who are actually basically ready to, to start taking the first three freedoms of, 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 of truthfulness in our own lives and, and um, compassion, love, um, which is a major aspect of what we do in the Ethereum Society. We, 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 we are, do have the teachings on which we're based, but then there's uh, the work that we do in cooperation with masters from, from other worlds uh, and it's what we call karma yoga, yoga of service, of helping others and, and also helping um, the earth. And that's the work to be engaged. That is service. And these things most certainly too bring about a state of, great, of, of realization or enlightenment.
Yes, Jude is presenting the question that um, we talked about the past civilizations, Atlantis, Lemuria, when there were two camps, the forces of darkness and the forces of light, and is um, presenting the question, is this happening on Earth now? Well, absolutely, yes. It is happening on Earth now. And um, that's another class, of course. What? But um, there are, I mean, we're just... People on Earth are just pawns, aren't they? They're pawns. If you take, if you take um, a lot of the structures on Earth and a lot of the organizations on Earth, you can see that the underlying core of those organizations uh, is corrupt. And this corruption... And most of mankind is like pawns in the hands of a few. And are those few um, forces of darkness or are they forces of light? And it's up to us to choose. And... Really, this, we are coming to a sort of a crossroads in our civilization where we will have to choose. Do we want to go that way, which is kind of slightly corrupt, but it's more comfortable? Or do I want to take to this path, uh, which is, you know, seems like true and it's harder, but um, you know, it's, a, it's a time when we will have to choose because very clearly there are forces of darkness which wants to cause war. You just have to see some of the films. You know, Wag the Dog was one, I think, where war is... There's another one recently that was very, very good about arms dealers and how war is created to sell arms and to make money and to keep people in business. And all this is created by the forces of darkness. Um, Very, very simply. And they have a lot of power on this physical realm. But also the forces of light have a lot of power. But it's up to us to choose which which side do we want to take, if you like. And it's always been the problem, and it, it still is the problem. We have to choose. And one teaching, which I think is a brilliant one, which the Cosmic Masters gave, which is, if you're a Christian, be a good one. If you're a Buddhist, be a good one. If you're a Hindu, be a good one. In other words, whatever religion you are, whichever philosophy you adhere to, do it to the very best of your ability. So they're not saying, well, Christianity is better than uh, this, or this is better than this, because that's division. And what they're, they're looking at the Earth as one planet. And, you know, even the astronauts, when they went out to space, what did, they, what did they have? What realization did they have? We're one, you know. Okay, we've got count, countries, we've got boundaries, we've got borders. But basically, we're in it together. We're one. And um, so this is the teaching, and this is the philosophy. And if you hear that, that kind of philosophy, then you know you're on the right track. But if, you, if something doesn't feel right to you, as Paul said, if it seems corrupt and it's wrong, then steer away from it. Because probably at the core of it is darkness. The light. Actually, right on the, uh, there's, a, there's a quote from a transmission. We will play extracts from transmissions during this course, but um, the quote at the bottom of, of this book, You Are Responsible, is actually written in 1961, um, from the same master who gave the nine freedoms, Master Sector 6, but... These are the last days of the old order. The new order on earth will be greater peace, greater joy, conditions beyond your wild imaginings, or rebirth upon a younger world to relive the terrors of the history you have made upon this planet. Choose and act. And we'll go into that more next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. This concludes part one 
of Why the Ethereum Society Lecture Series. We thank you for joining us and look forward to you next week when we continue to explain the great and mighty mission of the Ethereum Society. Until then, please feel free to visit us at www.ethereus.org, your cosmic connection. Thank you.